Welcome to another episode in the podcast Faculty in Research. Today we're joined by John Rust, one of our most distinguished colleagues, a distinguished university professor in the Department of Economics at Georgetown College of Arts and Sciences. John's an outstanding scholar. He's most well known throughout the profession for his contributions in the area of structural econometrics. We may probe what that means. His scholarship has been acknowledged by various editorial appointments throughout his career, and especially uh, his election as fellow of the Econometric Society, and also as a founding member of the International Association of Applied Econometrics. For his paper, Optimal Replacement of GMC, General Motors Corporation, Bus Engines, which colon an empirical model of Harold Zurcher. In fact, we ought to talk about that. He was awarded the prestigious Frisch Medal. John joined us at Georgetown at the Econ Department in 2012. He previously held positions at University of Wisconsin, Yale, and the University of Maryland. In 2014 here, he was appointed the Gallagher Family Professor of Economics. And then most recently, as I mentioned, he was appointed as Distinguished University Professor, the highest honor we can give one of our colleagues. So, so John, I'm just delighted that you're able to join us today. It's a conversation I've been wanting to have for some time. So may, maybe we ought to begin with, how did you end up with this gig? What does your memory tell you? And when the notion of being an academic actually became attractive to you? When did, when did that notion become un- unlocked for you? Well, first of all, let me say, I think I've got the best gig in the world. I can't uh, tell you what an honor it is to be at Georgetown and how much of a a privilege it is to have my position and how much I think highly of the colleagues at Georgetown, what a great institution it is. And so I want to do what I can to do things uh, well for Georgetown. Uh, But, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, I never expected to be where I'm at. Uh, when I started out, you know, my parent, neither of my parents went to college. I grew up in Wisconsin. And at the earliest ages, I always thought that college would be really cool. I don't know where it came from, um, how I got that. But I do remember reading science fiction at around eight years old. And I was reading uh, Isaac Asimov, The Foundation Trilogy. And I don't know if you ever read that book, but it's about a galactic empire, for the, you know, our galaxy. And, and the, there was a planet called Trantor and a, a guy who was a psycho historian named Harry Seldon. And Harry Seldon was a mathematician who could predict the fall of the galactic empire. He knew that he couldn't stop that fall of the galactic empire, but using the mathematical equations, he knew, knew that if he could develop two foundations that uh, it was going to be Encyclopedia Galactica on either side of the galaxy, he could reduce the period of chaos and anarchy from 30,000 years to only uh, 1,000 years. So I'm an eight-year-old thinking, wow, that is cool. He can't predict individual people, but he can predict mass movements of people and and actually do something to actually shorten the period of suffering. And, And I just thought that is totally cool. And I think that was the seed that got me interested in mathematics and, and applying it to people and trying to predict what people do. I, you know, I was just looking at the Wikipedia page on Asimov, and I, I saw that Paul Krugman also credits Asimov reading that book 
that why he got interested in economics. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winner, so I was really kind of surprised. But Asimov uh, seems to have been very influential to a number of people. This is a great story. And, and I can't imagine that a lot of your grade school and high school experiences built on that. That's the kind of uh, thing that uh, the mathematics you were exposed to, I guess, you had to wait a little before you could really jump. Yeah, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know about what the mathematics would really be, what would the equations, they didn't talk about that. But uh, I think the second formative experience is I went to Penn, uh, I got in the University of Pennsylvania, it was a great, an, a great honor to be accepted there. And at Penn, I had a friend named Daniel Easterlin. His father is uh, Richard Easterlin, who was a very famous economist. And my aspirations were not academics, even at Penn. I just wanted to graduate with a degree in mathematics and a degree from Wharton School. But Danny invited me over to the Easterlin's home out in the main line of uh, suburban Pennsylvania. And Richard Easterlin just seemed like the coolest guy. He was walking around in blue jeans and a car. He had a, a pipe. He had a library and a nice Tudor house. And I just the lifestyle appealed to me. He, you know, and then I asked him, well, what are you working on? And he said, well, I'm studying happiness. I'm trying to understand why if people in certain societies are happier than others. And I thought, wow, who gets a job like that? Who gets to walk around in a nice house and just think deeply about happiness? You know, and I thought, how do you know, how do you get a job like that? <laughs> and I, but I didn't think I could get a job like that. I said, well, only really special, really brilliant people can get jobs like that. So even then, as an undergrad, my aspirations weren't to be an academic. It just kind of a series of random things that led ultimately to uh, my getting into grad school and then going on. So I mentioned this famous article that you wrote about bus engines. Tell us who Harold Zurcher is. Is that am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Zer we could Zurcher. Um, Zurcher is actually a name of a citizen of, Z of Zurich. Actually, I, I found that out by doing uh, winter schools in in Zurich, uh, Switzerland. And if you're a Zurcher, you're you know it's like you're a citizen of Zurich. And there's many Swiss immigrants. But I was a, a new assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin, my first job. And I had developed this general mathematical technique that uh, predicts how people make dynamic decisions. And I submitted a theoretical article to the top journal in our field called Econometrica, and it got rejected. And so the editor, a Nobel Prize winner named Angus Deaton, very famous guy, said, John, you know, I don't think you can actually implement this. This looks way too complicated to me. But if you can find an empirical application and show that you can actually do this, send it back and I'll definitely consider this. So I, I kind of shopped around. You know, it's not the best way to do science, but I but basically I had developed a, a tool and I wanted to find data to make the tool look good. And I, I went around at the time looking for data that I could apply this tool to. And uh, I went to a uh, rental car. I thought, well, rental cars are a good industry because there's lots of cars. They're replacing the cars and we're buying new cars, but nobody would give me data. And then I thought, well, what about buses? There's fleets of buses. And I went to New York and Los Angeles and called them on the phone and nobody wanted to give me data. So Finally, I, out of frustration, I walked down to the uh, Madison Bus Company, Madison Metropolitan Bus, where I was in Madison. And I thought, well, they don't have many, very many buses. It's a small town. But I met Harold there. He was in the shop. And I walked into the shop, and there were all these buses up on lifts. And they were pulling out the bus engines from the buses 
and replacing them. And we got into a conversation. Harold was a, unfortunately, he died two years ago, but he was a super, super nice guy. And he told me, well, we frequently, you know, we don't have that many buses replaced, but we replace bus engines very frequently as a preventive maintenance. So he showed me his books and he had a series of books. And I thought, wow, this could, I could use this. And I asked him, could I get your data? And he said, well, sure, sure. And he was the nicest kind of guy. And, and then my brother who was uh, an undergrad at the time. We drove over and collected the books. There were these big ledger books where they wrote down the mileage on each buses and then an indicator when they replaced the bus engine. And we took it and you know, it was when the IBM PC was coming out. So we were typing the data. My brother, I hired my brother to type the data into the PC. And as a joke, I always say, you know, you get your hands dirty with the data. Well, I literally carrying out these books from his shop, there was uh, axle grease on them. And I actually literally had axle grease on my hands carrying the books out. So I, I literally got my hands dirty with the data. And in the process, you made Harold, Harold sort of a famous person in the econometric world. Yeah, it, like kind of people, uh, you know, blogs and talking about Harold Zerker. Yeah, you, you know, this paper has now been cited almost 2,500 times and still increasing in citations. So people, it, it somehow caught a nerve. And I was a little bit bold by putting his name in the paper, uh, but I, I thought they wouldn't let me get away with that. But I just thought, here, I'm, I'm actually modeling a single person, a decision maker, Harold Zerker, and I can actually put that in the title. I thought that's going to be catchy when I, if we can publish that and if they let me do that. So uh, I, I always viewed it as just a wonderful, you know, salute to the sophistication of, of someone who works day to day. So remind us one more time, the critical question that the data allowed you to address was what? And the answer was what? Okay, well, the, the question was, how often does he replace his bus engines? Now, if you replace them too soon, he's it's costly to rebuild and take the bus engine out. But if he leaves them uh, in too long to try to save that replacement cost, there's a bigger chance of a breakdown of the bus. So he's balancing things dynamically. And it's a dynamic decision because the longer the bus goes without a replacement, the bus engine there's a bigger chance of breakdowns, which could have costs and safety implications for the bus riders. So we developed a, what's called a dynamic programming model, or it's called an optimal stopping problem. How long do you go on the bus in terms of mileage until you decide to take that bus engine out and replace it with a new one to balance those costs? And what we were able to find is kind of estimate the costs in terms of goodwill and customer losses to an unplanned outage on the buses when they're in operation versus the cost of replacing these engines. And we found this model fits his behavior very well. So in other words, it's like, uh, like you said, here's a guy who never went to college, but he's very smart in his job. And our model predicted very well what he did, his behavior, in particular, what's called the hazard function, the probability of replacing a bus engine as a function of the accumulative mileage uh, since the last replacement. The method fit the data really well and showed that he's a very smart guy because uh, his behavior is consistent with a pretty sophisticated dynamic programming that he doesn't even know what that is. <laughs> Can you go back on those days and give us a sense of what it was like to move from having completed your dissertation to the multiple duties of an assistant professor and how, how you made it through those years? 
Yeah, well, you know, I look back, I think I was very happy-go-lucky. For instance, I got into MIT with a National Science Fellowship Foundation, and I just was convinced that I would be flunked out. I, I went to MIT and look at the, the room that they stirred all the PhD theses, and I would see a thesis that was about that thick, about two inches thick, filled with equations. I thought, I will never be able to write a PhD thesis like that. And you know, so, but I think at each stage, you face challenges, and then you see instead of just giving up, you say, well, let's try it. And the worst could happen is I could fail. I could flunk out of MIT, but that's not going to end my life. So but lo and behold, I was able to, to graduate from MIT and write a thesis. It was not two inches thick. It was like 110 pages long, but it had the essential ideas that became the Harold Zerker paper. And then as an assistant professor, I was convinced that well, I got into the University of Wisconsin, a preeminent state institution. I thought, well, I'll, I'll probably never get tenure, but I'm just going to try it. Let's see what happens. And I was so I guess I would say a little bit happy-go-lucky, not worrying so much about the downside, just focusing on what was fun about doing the research and then seeing what would happen, see how the chips would fall. And uh, so I think I, I did get luck. I mean, lucky is uh, luck is part of the success story, I think, right? I was lucky at a number of stages in my career, uh, lucky to get into MIT, lucky to get into Penn, and lucky to be uh, hired by the University of Wisconsin. And once you're around a high peer group, a high ability peer group, you rise to the occasion, you start running as fast as the people around you. In those early years, what was your situation with regard to mentoring like? Who, who were you looking up to and seeking advice with? Well, there were some really famous people at University of Wisconsin. The, the Poverty Institute was there. There was some really top sociologists. There was an econometrician named Arthur Goldberger. Chuck Mansky was a very leading uh, person. Just a lot of uh, really good and famous people I looked up to. And so, you know, you emulate certain people that really are your role models. I think it leads you to go further and uh, trying to, to be even half as good as these other people uh, I think it brings out the very best in in somebody. And, and it's also true at Georgetown. I have so many people that I admire that I want to keep working and I keep doing well, just because not only because I love it, but I, I don't want to let other people down that I, I really admire. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a challenge. I, I wasn't married. I didn't get married till 35. And so I think it's a more of a challenge if you're married and you're balancing family responsibilities. During those early assistant professor years, I could really do nothing else but research. And, uh, you know, I sometimes would stay up till three o'clock in the morning and sleep late. But when I was inspired, I, I, I went on that. You know, when I had an, a research idea, I would just kind of follow it out doggedly to conclusion. Well, let's switch gears. So what are you working on now? What's the thing that you find yourself thinking about at odd moments because it's so uh, encompassing of your attention? Well, there's two things. I'm, I'm getting ready to give a talk for the Distinguished Professorship, and it's going to be called Are People Rational? So I'm reading widely, and uh, you charged me uh, when asking me to do this to branch out of beyond economics. And, and so I'm trying to branch into philosophy, into psychology. So I'm working on that, and I'm reading some really fascinating things. And what I will focus on is the big conflict. Uh, economists tend to look at the world rationally, like Harold Zerker is a very rational optimizer. But there's quite a bit of evidence. You look at politics and a lot of things seem like people are completely irrational, right? The people, the big role of QAnon and 
election denialism and so on. So I'm going to try to, uh, you know, grapple with that kind of paradox in my talk. I think that people who are not economists tend to think people are, are not very rational. I'm, as I get older, I'm more subscribing to that view. So now, uh, in terms of a particular research paper, I'm very proud of a paper I just finished, and it's on auctions of rental cars in Korea. And, and basically, it's a particular auction that's in continuous time. It lasts for two min minutes. And in this auction, to prevent collusion, none of the bidders know anything about the other bidders except their own bid and at any point during the auction, whether it's the high bid or not. And the highest bidder at the end of the two-minute auction is the winner. So we've developed a model using dynamic programming, again, my standard tool, to predict the behavior and the bids of the bidders in this auction. Now, what we find is kind of a paradox. If you are going to say that people are the ultimate rationality, the ultimate, and this is called a perfect Bayesian equilibrium, because during an auction, you are trying to learn the minimum price you need to pay to win the auction. You don't want to overpay. So you're trying to learn from signals that's going on in this auction, even though they're very reduced signals. And uh, we uh, conjecture that in a perfect Bayesian equilibrium, where if every bidder was the ultimate in rationality, they would never want to bid early in the auction until the very last second. That's called bid sniping. But what we show manifestly in the data is that people are bidding early. They're trying to learn by bidding early in the auction to learn what the high bid is. So the, the data are just really fascinating on what people are actually doing. So we back off from perfect rationality just a little bit to assume that they're experienced bidders and they're solving a dynamic programming to learn by placing bids to learn just the minimum amount they need to win the auction, but making the trade-off about not bidding too much too, too soon to win the auction. And we find this model provides a pretty good explanation of their bidding, but even this model, this reduced rationality model, generates uh, patterns of bids that compared to the actual bids, we, we get a phenomenon called early overbidding, that people come in, rush in, too, bid too high, too fast in the auction, and that ends up putting pushing up the price compared to what our robot bidders would do. Our robot bidders would be a little bit more patient. They would bid low and increase toward the end of the auction, and they would end up buying the uh, the cars for less money than the human bidders would do. So mm -hmm. this is an, you know, an example of what's called behavioral economics, where we're trying to not say people are stupid, but saying that they have certain biases or cognitive limitations that robots don't have, like sophisticated robots. And this ties into the literature on artificial intelligence and so on, where we see in certain areas like chess, where uh, computer programs are way uh, overpowering human players. Mm -hmm. So that's the inference. You have this particular kind of auction and South Korean cars, but actually the inference is to a much larger set of behaviors. Is that? That's is that right. We, we can capture many of the, the early bidding in the auction, but the model is not a, still a perfect model. So we would say the model is still rejected by the data. And so we are trying to work on now what additional level of uh, relaxation of rationality can we add to the model to explain this early overbidding that we observe? We get a lot of it. You know, we get 90% of it. But that last 10% to get a, a really good fit to what people are doing is what we're 
searching for now. What's the title of this piece in case we want to look at it? It's explaining early bidding in informationally restricted uh, ascending bid auctions. It's with uh, Harry Parsh and my long-term co-author and former student, Sung Jin Cho at the uh, Seoul National University. We have timestamps of 11,000 used car auctions from car rental company in Korea. Well, John Rush, I'm so happy that we had these moments together. And I want to, on behalf of all, all my colleagues, congratulate you on, on oh, becoming you. a distinguished university professor. You're a treasure for Georgetown. Thanks for these few minutes of chat. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. Nice to talk to you. Have a great day.